you want to open your Bibles, we're going to continue in our series in Isaiah and hear what the Lord has to say to us through this text here today. We're going to be looking at uh, a couple chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50 and 51, and the first few verses of uh, chapter 52 is what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Let me make sure that my clicker is on. There we go. Yeah, you can follow along. Most of the text is going to be up here on the screen, but Isaiah 50 is where we're going to begin. Uh, my, so my wife Rachel and I have been here at the church for this summer. It'll be 23 years, and we've raised our family here. Uh, we've had three boys, two of which are still with us, Asher, who's 15, and Beck, who's turning 11 next week. Uh, it's been a complete blessing to be able to raise boys, uh, but they're wild. Any of you have raised boys, that might not be news to you, but boys, I'm not saying my boys, although they probably are wilder than most, but boys are wild, especially when they're young. Uh, and I have a very specific memory of parenting my boys, and I'm going to confess it to you, hopefully because uh, it's a common experience, uh, and if not, and I'm just a terrible father, you can let me know afterwards, but here we go. Uh, one of the things that would happen, particularly when Asher was little, he was four or five years old, we would go to the grocery store or to Target or to Walmart, and uh, it was an endless cornucopia of visual splendor for him to poke at and touch and play with, and he would wander away from us, and I would say over and over and over again, Asher, come here, Asher, come here, Asher, stop touching that, Asher, put that down, Asher, come here over and over and over again. And then I would get to the end of the aisle and be ready to go to the next aisle, and I would say, Asher, come on, Asher, come on. We're... So eventually, uh, I pulled what I think is a classic dad move, where I would slide around the corner at the end of the aisle, and then I would hide myself behind the end of the aisle, and I would peek through the boxes to watch him, and then I would wait for him to realize that I was gone. And then I would be shocked at how long it took him to realize that I was gone. I'd be like, certainly he's going to become afraid any moment now and realize the importance that his father has in his life. And minute would tick by and minute would tick by and minute would tick by. And then eventually he would look up and realize he was all by himself. And then he would start sauntering down the aisle and I would quietly follow him and peek around the next corner to see what's happening. Until eventually, because the whole point of this exercise is to reinforce some truth to him. I wanted him to understand that it is a scary thing to be without your father. And I was always shocked at how long it took to him to come to that conclusion because he would be just fine wandering down the aisles looking around. But eventually he would come to a moment where he would start to get nervous. He wouldn't know where I was. He, he wouldn't know how to find me. And it was right at that moment where he experienced that that I would step out and say, Asher. And then he would snap around and, buddy, you got to listen to me. Now, what I was not trying to instill in him is terrifying and total abandonment. Or, okay, maybe just a little taste of it. Just like, you know, a smell of it. But what we see in Isaiah chapter 50 is we open uh, this text. And one of the challenges, honestly, to teaching Isaiah in through this, this section is that Isaiah continues to make a lot of the same points to the people of Israel. And he will run at these ideas over and over again using different poetic language, different visual metaphors in order to reinforce what he's trying to say. And what we have at the beginning of chapter 50 is Israel who is in exile. They are in captivity with their enemies. They've begun to talk to each other and to their own hearts about the reality of what they're facing. And the conclusion that they've come to is that they're kids who were left behind at a grocery store. Dad doesn't care about us. 
Dad left us. In fact, Dad left the home. He's moved on to a new family. He divorced Mom. He abandoned us. He's left us, put us up for adoption. He dropped us off at the fire station in hopes that someone else will take care of us. That's what Israel's telling themselves about the reality of what it looks like to be in captivity and to be far from God. And the text in chapter 50 opens with what I think is one of the most important statements in the scriptures. And when you see it, I would say this is your uh, signal that you should pay attention. And here's what it says. This is what the Lord says. So when we see that, buckle up. We should be listening. God is going to address them in this moment. And here's what he says. You think I left your mom? You think I abandoned the family? You think I've given you up for adoption? You think I sold you to creditors? Where is your mom's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors did I sell you to? Now, those might be odd things to say, uh, but in the ancient Near East, these were common experiences for people. If a woman was left by her husband, if her family was abandoned, the husband would have to give her a certificate of divorce saying he was formally done with care for her and her children. That would allow her to move on. It would allow her to remarry. It would allow her to find a new husband. And they're saying, this is what God has done to us. And so God says, show me the receipts. Where's that certificate of divorce that I supposedly gave her? The point is, you don't have one. The second analogy is maybe even more shocking because at least we, have our we can get our heads around what divorce and family breakups look like. But in the ancient Near East, what would be something that would happen is that if you had a debt that you could not pay or a debt you needed to secure, one of the ways that you could do it would be to give one of your children to your creditors as a certificate of deposit, as a down payment until you paid it off. Israel is saying, well, maybe he didn't divorce us, but at least he sold us off to someone he owed. And God says, so which, which of the creditors am I in hawk to that I had to sell you off? Do you know who it was? These are rhetorical questions because the entire idea is this is not what was going on. In fact, God starts to sound a lot like me in the next verses because this is what I sounded like when I would talk to Asher in the grocery store. When I came, why was there no one there? When I said, why don't you come here? Why didn't you listen? When I called, why did you not answer? Because I hear what you're saying about me. You're saying that my arm was too short to deliver you, that I lacked the strength to rescue you. But the reality is, this is not about me. This is about you. This isn't about my strength or my inability. This isn't about my desire to put you away. This isn't about my desire to get rid of you as my kids. This is about the fact that every time I called and I asked you to follow me, you ignored me. And that's what's put you in this situation. Sounds a lot like when I would come up to Asher, I'd say, Asher, did you get scared right there? And he'd say, yeah, Dad, I started to get scared. And I was like, okay, buddy, when I told you I needed you to follow me, why did you not listen? This is an issue of you not listening to your father who loves you and cares for you. Why are you blaming me? Do you really think I don't have the strength to keep an eye on you? Do you really think that my arm is too short to reach into Babylon and pull you out? Do you really think that about me? Let me remind you, son, who I am. I dry up the sea. I turn the rivers into a desert. I clothe the heavens with darkness. God says to Israel, you think these things are true of me? Do you really think that I'm so weak? Let me remind you, I am the God of everything that has ever been made. 
I dry up the sea. I turn the rivers into desert. I not only control everything on this planet, I control the cosmos and I clothe the heavens with darkness. That's me. Let me remind you who is your father. I love you and I'm close to you. And believe me, I can do what I choose to do. It's at this point that the text takes a turn. Uh, one of the things that um, is interesting in, in Isaiah is that you kind of have him jumping all over the place. Sometimes he's taking the position of Israel making claims against God. Sometimes he's taking the position of God speaking to Israel. Sometimes he's taking the position of him as the prophet speaking to the people. Sometimes he's taking the position of him as the prophet talking to God. And now he takes on another position here. And what scholars will usually call this is the servant. After all, this is where we get uh, the title for our sermon series, The Servant King. This is the, the servant. And scholars and biblical teachers and theologians have really argued for a long time over when Isaiah writes this, who is he really trying to emulate in his language? Uh, there's a few options that people have taken. First of all, the servant being Israel, that, that when he says the servant, this is what's supposed to be, this is the call of Israel. Uh, another idea that people give is that, the, that this is actually Isaiah, the prophet himself, is the servant of God. Right on the face of it, you have a couple issues. And when we get into the text, you'll see them immediately. Uh, the claims that the servant make can't be fulfilled by either Israel or Isaiah. It creates a real tension here. Let's see what it says. The servant says this, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. The servant says, I hear from God and he teaches me what to say when people need encouragement. He wakes me in morning by morning, and he wakes my ear to listen like one being instructed. The servant says, every morning God is nearby. He's the one that rouses me, like a loving mother who shakes me gently and wakes me up and says, get ready for the day. That's God himself in my life. He gives me instruction as soon as I wake up. Because the sovereign Lord has opened my ears, I've not been rebellious, I've not turned away. Well, okay, you get to that part and you go, well, okay, this isn't Israel. Because obviously the entire point of Isaiah's confrontation with Israel is you have been rebellious. You have turned away. You haven't listened. And really, Isaiah can't make these claims either. Although we don't have massive evidence that Isaiah was in disobedience to God, he is a human being and all humans are rebellious in their very nature. And they have turned away from God. Romans teaches us this. What we begin to see here as this servant is described is a servant that is not fulfilled by anyone that is alive today, but is a hope to look forward to. A servant who one day will fulfill these things. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Here's what he says. The servant not only listened and was instructed, I offered my back to those that beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and from spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. There's something a little bit shocking about the servant's claims here because the servant says, I'm the one who listens to God. I'm the one who has obeyed him. I've not tried to run away. I've not ignored his word. And yet, what is the outcome of that obedience? I'm being beaten, my beard is being pulled out, I'm being mocked, and I'm being spit on. 
So if the idea that Israel has is that their faithfulness will make life really easy and chill for them, the servant has something else to tell them. And if we want another clue that this is really talking about Jesus, these are the exact things that Jesus underwent as he went to the cross in the Gospels. He was beaten. His beard was pulled out. He was spit on. He was mocked. And yet he did not turn away from the call that was put on his life. I love the last line of this at the end of verse 7. I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. I would say that this is an encouragement to us in the church. This is what God is asking you to do as a follower of him, as someone who hears his voice. Set your face and know. We don't use the phrase, set my face like flint very often, but essentially, flint is a hard material that things were stricken, strucken, struck, (laughs) you follow what I'm saying, that would create sparks and bring light and heat and fire. And what he says is, I have set my face hard and sharp in the direction that I need to go. Even if I will be struck, it will produce light. It will produce heat. And I know I will not be put to shame. This is the call to the church. If you are following Jesus so life will be easy, that's not always the way that it works. Because the reality is life is difficult. And there's a lot of things going on in your life that might be difficult right now. The call is not to resolve the difficulty. The call is to be faithful, to set your face like flint and know you will not be put to disgrace. I grew up in the 80s. Oh, I spoiled it. I grew up in the 80s. As a kid in the 80s, uh, I was borderline obsessed with Japanese culture. Love Japanese culture, mostly because they gave me Nintendo. And that really bought them a lot of goodwill in my life. Uh, But the other thing I really liked was kung fu movies. Um, I really liked the style and the choreography of kung fu movies, and my, and my favorite guy in kung fu was Bruce Lee. You probably saw his picture. My favorite thing about Bruce Lee is um, modern American movie stars, superhero guys, are huge. Like, even in the 80s and 90s, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the guy. He's a massive man. Now we're trying to, we keep trying to pretend that The Rock is like a real movie star, I guess. He's big. <laughs> That's what American movie stars are, big guys. Even Sylvester Stallone, who is not really that big of a guy, his whole thing was to try to make himself appear like a really big guy all the time, so he carried really big machine guns and stuff. Um, Bruce Lee didn't have any of that. Bruce Lee's a little guy. He's short. He's, he's lithe. I love that word. He's, he's muscular and trim, but what he had was absolute confidence. And I always remember, and I can't decide if because it actually happened in a kung fu movie or if it's from a police academy movie, when he would say, you want to fight? Fight me. I love that. There's a big battle breaking out. There's seven, eight bad guys who all have kung fu skills or whatever kind of skills they had. Uh, and Bruce would show up. And Bruce would challenge them. And he would say, you want to fight? Fight me. I got this. Bruce's attitude was incredible. And why did Bruce have that kind of attitude? Because Bruce knew that he could back it up. Because Bruce had skills. He had unbelievable nunchuck skills. And let's be honest, that's what I was really excited about. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be the guy who could 
really hurt somebody with nunchucks. And then all my friends, why did none of our, my friends have nunchucks? Because we told each other that they were illegal in the United States. I have no idea if that was true, but we all told ourselves, you know, I'd be really good with nunchucks if they weren't illegal in the United States. <laughs> um, but Bruce was a confident guy, and he would back up his confidence. And I love this next section of the text because the servant sounds a lot like Bruce Lee. Here's what he says. He who vindicates me is near. God is right by. So who's going to bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. Who's got, who's got beef? Who thinks that they can take me out? Who thinks that they can shut me down in my faithfulness and following God? God is right here. Bring it. You're not going to dissuade me from faithfulness because God, my defender, my vindicator, is right here. That is what he tells them, and I love it. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who's going to condemn me? They'll all wear out like a garment. The moss will eat them up. Uh, that's maybe a weird phrase. That's like uh, ancient Near Eastern smack talk. He's, uh, he's on the court, and he's telling them that they're trash. He's saying, I'm going to dunk on you. I'm going to put you on a poster. My boys say he's going to make them. They play soccer. It's the guy who does this, and then you kick the ball through his legs and make him look like a fool. He says, you're going to wear out like a garment that a moth ate. Now, you can imagine if you only had one garment, that's a big deal. <laughs> this is kind of the equivalent of saying your house is going to burn down. Still not the greatest of trash talk, but that's what he's saying. Who do you think you are? You, you want to confront me? I've got God on my side. Good luck. You're going to get eaten up like a moth. Who among you, he turns to us, fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Once again, there is a tacit acknowledgement right here that life will bring you into dark places. And this morning, maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel that darkness. Maybe you received a health diagnosis that is dire. Maybe you're further along the path than that. And you know the end of life is right around the corner. Maybe your marriage is in shambles. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you're in debt. Maybe your children have left and you have a broken relationship with them. Maybe your parents have done something to you that seems so egregious you don't know if you'll ever be able to forgive them. The reality is life is darkness. There is hardship. And Isaiah acknowledges that and says, when you are walking in the dark, when you have no light, I'll tell you what to do. Trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on your God. Because when you do, you can be confident. I grew up in uh, rural North Dakota on the farm, and my parents built uh, in the early 80s a, a very common farmhouse. 1,200 square feet, three tiny bedrooms, kitchen, dining room, living room. Uh, but the magic really happened in the basement, because we had a basement downstairs, and uh, the best part about the basement as a kid is that when you went down to the basement and you shut off the lights, it was pitch black in that basement. So dark down there. Now, you'd think that would be scary, and oftentimes it was, 
particularly when I have to shut off the lights and run up the stairs and wait for that guy to grab my leg on the way up. Um, but my cousins and I would get together all the time in the basement, and we would play dark tag. That's what we called it, uh, where we would all get down in the basement and shut off the lights in the pitch black, and we would play tag with each other. And I know this is a weird thing to brag about, but I was really good at dark tag. As a nine-year-old, I crushed it at dark tag. And here was the reason that I was so good at dark tag. My bedroom was in the basement. I spent a lot of time down there. I was comfortable in the dark. And so when the lights would go off, didn't bother me at all. They're stumbling into things, falling over things, and I was, I was all over the place, very smooth, as you can imagine. Um, we, we have a school that meets here uh, during the week, and one of the teachers here at the school is a, a visually impaired woman named Anna, and she has a seeing-eye dog that helps her around. And every time I see her, I'm amazed by her because she moves around this place like it's no big deal. And particularly when she first started teaching here, I was just astounded at how easily she moved around campus. She cannot see anything and yet, with the aid of her dog, she makes it around like it's no big deal. And I always imagine how hard it must be to go through life never knowing what confidently is your next step. And yet, the reality of what she experiences in her life is an ability to move in that with confidence. And this is what the call is to God's people in this. Not to avoid the darkness, but to be confident in the darkness, to have confidence in the darkness. Because when the darkness is there, when the darkness comes, when the hardship is there, God is saying, because you can rely on me, because I'm your vindicator, because I'm nearby, you can move with confidence. You can take the next step because I got you. In fact, you can not only walk tentatively as one tends to do in darkness, you can run because I have your steps and I have your back and I'll make sure you have what you need. Confidence in the darkness allows the darkness to not be so scary. And it allows us to not be paralyzed by it. And it is not what everyone does. Almost no one ignores the darkness. Almost no one ignores the darkness. And the servant addresses the people and what they normally do when they're confronted with darkness. Here's what he says. But now... All of you who light fires and provide yourself with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you've set ablaze. This is what you should receive from my hand. You'll lie down in torment. Now, I have to admit, when I first read that, I was like, wow, that's kind of harsh. They're scared. Life's hard. Go lie down in torment? The more I think about it, I think I'm getting a picture of what he's trying to say. When we're in the darkness, humanity's natural response is to create fires for yourself. I have never went deep into a cave system with a torch on the end of a stick and a flame. I've always wanted to because it makes me think of Indiana Jones. But if I've learned anything from movies, and I've learned a lot, uh, one of the things is when you light that torch... It's really exciting at first because it, it flames up really high and it puts off a lot of heat and a lot of light and then it eventually settles into a subtle glow and then you can work your way deeper and deeper into the darkness. But also if I've learned anything from movies, what eventually happens to the torch? It starts to go out. 
I have a feeling writing movies isn't really that hard because everybody knows what happens next, right? The torch starts to burn low and eventually the torch starts to burn itself out. And what the servant is saying to the world, he's saying to us, is those of you who deal with the darkness by lighting your own torches, by starting your own fires, go ahead, make your way deeper into the darkness because eventually that torch is going to start working itself down to the nub. What are the torches? I think we live in a society that is not a lot different than a lot of societies. We build our torches on all kinds of things. We tell ourselves if we just all received a certain level of education, we would be able to light up the world and there would be no darkness. If we could just get a certain amount of scientific certainty in the world, we would be able to light torches and there would no longer be any darkness. If we could just get our economic system humming along at exactly the right frequency where we have 2.5% inflation and under 4.5% unemployment rate, and if our GDP grows at approximately 3%, we'll be right where we need to be. And there will be no darkness. If I can just get that next step in my career, if I can just get that next promotion, if I can just get the right person to marry me, if I can just move into the right house, if I can just get the right number of zeros in my bank account, if I can just get my kids into the right private school, if my kids can just make the right soccer club team, those torches will be so bright. There will be no darkness left. And then the reality is we begin to, deep down in our hearts, understand that those tor torches are not sufficient. And so we start to light new torches to help soothe the pain of that reality. Torches called sex. Torches called entertainment. Torches called vacations. Torches called social media. Tor torches called alcohol and drugs. Torches called distraction. All in an effort to stave off the darkness. And what God says to them is, hey, those of you that are going to chase those things for your light, go ahead, warm yourself by those lights. Be comforted by those lights. I'll give you the only thing I can give you out of my hand, torment. And you're still left with this like, geez, that feels harsh. Here's the reality. When we look at our culture, we have higher levels of education than we've ever had. We have higher levels of wealth than we've ever had. We have more access to entertainment than we've ever had. We have more access to information than we've ever had. We have more access to leisure. We have more access to vacations. We have more access to self-expression than ever before in human history. And yet when you look at our collective experience in mental health, we are so broken. We are lying down in torment. Levels of anxiety are higher than they've ever been. Levels of depression are higher than they've ever been. Levels of divorce are higher than they've ever been. Levels of suicide are higher than they've ever been. I don't think God is issuing some curse on them. He's saying, when you warm yourself by these fires, when you rely on those torches to be the ones that get you through the darkness, when they start to burn out, you're going to be laying there in torment because you know they're insufficient to really ward off the darkness in life. That's the truth of the matter. And we need to do something about that. What do we do? First thing we have to do is we have to heed the warning. We cannot rely on dying light. It is a temptation for every single one of us not to enjoy the goodness of these things, 
but to rely on them to be the things that will bring meaning and usher us out of the darkness we feel at our core level. We cannot rely on those things because they cannot satisfy, they cannot deliver. When God says hypothetically, is my arm not long enough? Am I not strong enough? He is legitimately saying, in contrast, those things are not strong enough. Those things' arms are short, but I am not. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. If you're sitting in the room with us today, I assume that you're here because you want that to be true of you, that I'm someone who who pursues righteousness. I'm someone who seeks the Lord. Great, he's got a word for you. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one man, and I blessed him to make him many. Okay, so if you've been around church for a long time, if you grew up around the church, you go, oh, I know what he's saying. He's appealing to Israel's history to remind them of something. If you haven't been around the church for a long time, let me give you a little piece of that history. Abraham and Sarah are the father and the mother of the Israelite people. They're the original people that God approached and said, if you will come and follow me, I will do something extraordinary with you. And the promise was, I will turn you and your barren family into a nation. So God says, if you're one of the people who wants to pursue righteousness and seek the Lord, look to where you came from. Remember what I did with Abraham. Remember what I did with Sarah. I called him when he was one person, and I blessed him and made him many. That is what he tells us, and the result of that is hugely impactful. My son Asher, when he was probably about two and a half or three years old, we started a thing which I think is pretty common with dads. Josh would probably attest to this. Uh, We would do this thing where he would ask me to pick him up and I would toss him in the air and catch him. Any dads do this when you had little kids? Great. Thank you, Carrie. Throw him. Now, I feel like I'm bragging a lot today, but it's really hard because I'm awesome at some of the stuff I'm telling you about. I'm... (laughs) I'm kind of a big guy, and uh, he was like two and a half. He only weighed like 30 pounds. I could chalk that kid in the air. I would get low. You know, I'd start, I'd start throwing him little, oh, ha, 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 and he'd laugh, and then he'd say, higher, daddy, higher, and I'd throw him a little higher, and higher, daddy, higher. And eventually, I would go, mm. and I mean, he's flying 10, 15 feet in the air. When my wife starts going like, hey, maybe you should calm down. It's like, I got this. And I'd catch him. And he'd laugh and he'd squeal and he'd say, do it again. Do it again. And my wife is watching and thinking, this is insanity. You're going to slip. You're going to drop him. But the reality is, Asher loved it. And he loved it because he had future certainty based on prior evidence. He could experience the biggest chuck that I could manage because I had caught him every single time before. And he had absolute confidence that I was going to catch him the next time too. So it didn't matter how high he went, how crazy it felt. It was exhilarating because he knew I was going to catch him again. And what God is saying to his people is that when you follow me, when you listen to my rules, when you do what I've asked you to do, I got you. 
Therefore, you can have confidence that even though it feels bad right now, even though it feels like you're being put upon, even though it feels like you're being mocked, even though you are having difficulty, you can move with certainty based on prior evidence. He was faithful then, he'll be faithful again. That's the reality of his call to us. He says once again, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will be a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and for my arm. I'm going to continue to read this section out of Isaiah. I don't have it up here. You can follow along. It's in Isaiah 51, 4 and onward. But, or you can just listen. Here's what he says. Lift your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what's right. You people who have taken my instructions to heart, don't fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. And he continues on with this encouragement If you think I'm not going to move, let me tell you. Let me give you a trailer. Let me give you a preview of what's to come. My salvation is coming and it will last forever. My righteousness is on the way and it will never fail. Because my righteousness lasts forever. And my salvation will not just be for you. It will be through all generations. This is the claim of our God to his people. So the question becomes, what do we do? This is what Israel is saying. Well, what do we do? If this is true, what what do I do? He uses some shocking language here, which I think is helpful. He says, awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Now, if you're not very good at poetic language, let me interpret that for you. You're drunk. It's time to sober up. And you didn't even get drunk and satisfied on the best things that the world has to offer you. You drank it all the way down to the nasty filth at the bottom of the barrel. You, my people, have been drinking at the goblet that makes people stagger. And I'm telling you, that cup is not a cup of joy, it's a cup of wrath. He's saying to the person at the party, you might be having a great time today, but you're going to have a heck of a hangover tomorrow. You're going to be paying for this tomorrow. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what the sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I've taken from your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. God is so kind to his people, he doesn't just say, put down the goblet that's making you drunk. He comes right over to you and he takes it out of your hand. 
He's your friend at the party who says, you've had too much. It's time to shut it down. He says, time to wake up to what's really real. It's time to sober up. It's time to be serious about who we're called to be. It's time to admit that the things that we've relied on for comfort and for power and for control are insufficient for you. They've been insufficient for all of human history and they're insufficient today. It's time to wake up. It's time to be serious. It's time to believe. He says this, For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those that rule them mock them, declares the Lord. All day my name is being constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it's I. I'm telling you right now, the world is telling you that I have no power, that I have no influence, that I'm never going to show up. And I'm giving you a really good gift right now. It's a wake-up call. I've come to you. I've gently roused you. I've taken the cup that you've been drinking on out of your hand. I've called you to sobriety, to following me. And I'm telling you about what I'm going to do so that when it happens, you know that I'm him that I'm the one, that it is I. Dallas Willard, you will get sick of hearing me quote Dallas Willard probably, but tough, he's great. Here's what he has to say about this. We need to be committed to the overriding intention of God for our good. Here's his quote. It is confidence in the invariably overriding intention of God for our good with respect to all evil and suffering that may befall us on life's journey that secures us in peace and joy. Let me read that to you again. It is confidence in the invariably, that means unchanging, overriding, that means more powerful than anything, intention of God for our good with respect to all the evil and suffering that may befall us in life's journey that secures us in peace and joy. We need to hold on as God's people to the commitment that he has made to us, that he has an intention for us, that is good, even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of suffering, and maybe most of all in those places. So if that describes you today, if you say, man, I am in a dark place, man, I am suffering, man, I have not been able to find a way out, I am here to remind you that God is committed to your good more than you are. And I'm also here to remind you that as impotent as you often feel to bring about good in your own life, he is him. He's got you. He's the one that dries up the rivers. He's the one that dries up the oceans. He's the one that brings darkness to the sky. And he sees you, and he's here to vindicate and to bring his people into faithful worship to him. He leaves us with this statement. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself in strength. Here is a reminder. This strength not, does not come from your ability to be clever or wise or faithful. You are clothing yourself in the strength of Jesus Christ, the servant who has fulfilled all things. So put on the garment. Strengthen yourself. Be awake. Be alert. Follow God. He is doing something, and he's going to use us to accomplish it. Let's pray that he helps us this morning. God, thank you so much for the words of Isaiah who echo across 
2,700 years of history. I'm always astounded as we dive into these instructions for Israel in a time and a place we can barely get our heads around and how applicable it is to us today. God, I confess that we've often been drunk on the offers of the world. I confess that we've often looked to the light of other things to provide us hope in the darkness. God, we confess that those things pale in comparison to the strength, the might, the faithfulness of our God as demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful people. God, I pray that you give us the kindness to see how you have been weaving good together in our lives, even in the midst of things that seem so difficult. God, we need you. We need your spirit. We need to be transformed. Encourage us. Be near to us. Love us. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.